Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Layers of Design. I'm Ebehi and I'm your host. This is our 30th episode, guys. Wow, wow, wow. I'm so thrilled and it's so exciting to look back and see how much our ideas have grown and the connections we've developed along the way. Thank you so, so much for tuning in to past episodes. And if this is your first episode, welcome and thank you. We look forward to growing with you all. In this episode, I talk with Malik Benjamin about his design journey and what inspired his career. He's a designer and an educator who is involved in community growth through networking and collaboration. Malik is a 2018 Rodenberry Fellow, 2017 BME Genius Fellow, Miami Fellow Class 6, and also the host of Creative Mornings Miami. This is just to name a few things he is involved with. Malik and I spoke about different things, from how he got into design to where the architecture profession stands in the current climate of the lack of inclusivity. I hope you enjoy this one. Hi, Malik. Thank you so much for coming on to join me on this episode. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, so I guess I want to get started with asking you what got you into design and architecture? Uh, I thought design was the easiest way to improve communities. I thought it was like just basically a design problem. So if a neighborhood didn't look nice, um, and that was when I was really young, so I was like, nice, it has to look nice. Uh, I was like, oh, we'll just fix it and we'll draw something and then we'll build it. And it was, that's where it started. And of course, went through high school and was good at math. And my math, my college advisor was like, you're good at math, you should do architecture, which none of that really lines up <laughs> as much. But it was like, yeah, yeah. And then Cornell uh, gave me a good deal. Um, and so, I mean, good school too, but they also gave me one of the best packages I could get. And so I went, to the you know, number one design school in the country. Like, it's hard to say no. <laughs> yeah, and how was that experience? That That is uh, the second best experience of my life. My high school experiences were like my best experiences. Like the friends I have, I still have. But I have more friends from college. Like, like even like in, during this uh, the shutdown, the people I talk to the most, I text the most are either directly from there or like, one of the brothers of a person I went to, to school with, Kola Lekon Jeffers, like his brother, I talked to like more than probably him and I still talk to Lake. So uh, yeah, yeah, that, that experience was great. And also um, we're, we're also very still act, we're still active. And so um, the group that I went to school with, they're, they're talking to the dean of the school about a, a host of issues that they want um, to, to implement solutions for so that the school gets better and so I, I think I think it was and still is a great experience uh, to have gone gone there for, for for design school oh wow that's very nice um so another question that I wanted to ask you was about you being an educator because um, I've noticed that you are very open and you're also very big on sharing all of the knowledge that you you know that you've gathered throughout the years. So I wanted to ask what led you to be an educator? Uh, one of the most influential people 
while I was at, I guess it's two parts. A lot of my family are educators um, or worked in colleges and, and, and school systems. And, but then one of the people at Cornell, Dr. Raymond Dalton, he was like an art teacher and an architecture professor as well. And then he was a dean and he had like a bunch of positions. And so I was like, oh, this is a nice life right here. And the way he did it, he was always trying to help us improve our individual lives, but also focus us on the much, much bigger picture, the bigger picture than even we were getting in class about the world and about time, the time in which we were and what was going to happen in the future based on what was happening in the past and how we should be a part of solution solving. And so I, I was like that, I think if that framing of education made me go, oh, this is some, this is a place I can go to be near really, really smart, driven people. Um, in this case, mainly the students, but they're also professors, but like the students feel always feel smart and driven and then do it and like be there with them solving problems and helping them figure out where they're going to be for the next 30 to 40 years. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was probably Dr. Dalton, to be honest with you. Like, that, <laughs> like by himself, he alone was like an influence on me and not just me, but, but like a lot of people that I know. I guess that kind of leads me to my next question, which is about your early career influences. Yeah, it would, it, it would be, well, <laughs> career influences, that definitely Dr. Dalton. Um, in academia, also my friend, uh, he's like, a, he's an architect by training like me, but he's, he's been in the art world for a while. Ola Likonjev is a big artist. His dad was a professor at the time at, um, at both uh, Harvard and Cornell. Mm. And so, um, yeah, just watching him and seeing how he navigated very, two very complicated spaces was interesting. And then the third part, was uh, the upperclassmen at the time who all went off to like started businesses while they were in school and they were like at the time pushing computer rendering and internet technologies way before the school would even appreciate it or before anyone else was supporting them and they like all went on to like start very very successful businesses like D-Box. Um, they were my, my, my influences because it was like what are you doing? Okay. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that works. And you're doing this with studio. And they're like also like killing it at studios. Like you're you just did studio and now you're gonna go to New York really quickly to to get a deal. And that was back when rendering took mm -hmm. fifty times longer and the internet was <laughs> a thousand times slower. And they were just like they were just so I, I just watched them and was impressed. And then they were my inspiration for a lot of things. Yeah. Oh wow, that's that's really cool. <laughs> so um okay. So I know that you're the host and the founder of the Creatives, Creative Mornings in Miami. Can you tell us about that? Uh, Creative Mornings. It, it started in New York. Tina, um, former finance guru, mm -hmm. was like, I'm tired of being so much like a banker or a right brain person. Mm -hmm. Let's not do left brain, right brain, because I'm going to get them confused. Let's just say she was uh, a banker, very logical. And just like most Swiss, she also had a creative side. And she was started doing these breakfasts. And then people started saying, her friends were like, can we do these breakfasts in our city? And she was like, sure. And then at some point um, early on, she was like, we should brand the whole thing and see if we can set up some infrastructure. 
Miami joined, we were like the 69th chapter. There's about a 200 of them at this point. Um, that was about seven years ago. And so it's simply the, the, the idea is uh, cool venue, cool speaker, cool community, no cost with breakfast. That obviously changes at this point, but um, the idea was like, it should be a free space for creatives to get together, to access someone they don't always have a chance to access or to access someone in a way they don't always get a chance to access them. And it should be completely free and it should happen every month. And globally, we're all doing the same theme every month. So the idea is that we would, um, we would, it would basically as a global community show different aspects of the same word. So if the word's insecure, which was last month's theme, what does Prague think about insecure? Miami think about insecure? Los Angeles? What does um, Delhi think insecure? And then you have this, this archive of videos that come out every month that sort of demonstrate the way the world is thinking in theory. But yeah, yeah especially from a creative standpoint, um, it's always creative is defined by the individual chapter and by the people on stage and the audience. But it, 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 that in itself represents creativity. And so Miami, we just, you know, it's been since Miami had no co-working spaces or accelerators or anything to now Miami having multiple of everything yeah. and trying to figure out who's going to invest in what companies and startups and all those other com conversations. Creative mornings have always intrigued me and I always go back to, you know, to listen and watch the videos because I find them very inspiring and very interesting to see what different um, different people, like you said, how they start to think of different words, for example, or different themes in their own way, based on where they are or how they grew up, the, the different things that influence um, their lives. So I wanted to ask you about being a fellow, because I saw that that's one of the many things um, you know you are. So can you tell me how that, I guess, that experience is and what led you to, I guess, acquire that position? So fellowships, there's two types of fellowships. I, I tend to only do one of the two types. One type is you're a professional, you want to hang out with other professionals and you pay, someone pays, usually your business pays into a program, you join that fellowship and you learn from each other and then you usually get spun off. You go back to your life, but you've learned from your cohort. Um, actually, I, I'm in one thing sort of like that. It's about fundraising and understanding the fundraising world. Um, and, and one of the companies I work with paid, put us all together. And, and, and so it's, that's one type of fellowship. Fellowship I'm fascinated with is one where they choose you out of a group of people. They pay you, pay me, and then they, bring, they still bring us together. We learn from each other. And in the good fellowships like that, they continue to support you. Because what they're, they're really looking for is an investment, um, like a startup capital investment opportunity. They're looking at what you used to do, what your ideas are, and trying to figure out why you haven't been able to grow that idea. And what it usually boils down to is like, oh, you need access to capital or you need access to um, some resource. Uh, you don't have the right connections institutionally and their their job as an institution generally is like a foundation or some other institution with money to give away is like we will connect you to those individuals we connect you to those organizations as long as 
you keep pushing that idea, we will support you. Or a better idea. It doesn't have to be that idea. And so I've been fortunate because most of the times I'm in an institution that won't change. Mm-hmm. And um, you need uh, a sort of, in a, in a, in a corporate world, to be research and development. That's where your innovation, your disruption would happen. Um, a lot of places don't have that mentality or that sec- like that part of their institution. So I just basically use fellowships as my own personal disruption, research and development lab, which is why I set up a, a LLC called Institute of, of Collaborative Innovation. And that's where I do all of my, my uh, it starts out wacky and then I try to institutionalize it and make it impactful. Oh, wow. So there's another thing that I know you've touched on and something that I also know that you're pretty big on, which is um, being a community leader and helping you know communities through design. So I would l- like to talk on that a bit because um, one thing I'm also focusing on now is really getting into the community and using layers of design as a like as a tool to start helping the community through design. I guess a question I want to ask you is how can we get designers and architects to be more involved in those kind of projects? So I've got two answers. I'm going to give them both. (laughs) I'm going to give them both. When I talk to people like you, like if I find someone, like I'll I'll talk like Jermaine Barnes. Like Mm -hmm. if if I meet, and I've known Jermaine now, I mean, he's still young, but when he was really young, and it's like, if you have an idea, I never try to take the idea you have and say, now how do we get more people to do it? Because that takes a lot of energy away from building up your idea, meaning it's going to be hard since it's not the status quo. What you're describing is not the status quo. Yeah. It's going to be hard to create the change that you're looking to create. So in my mind, it's like, if the goal is to make change. The goal is probably quicker to make change and build consensus and get more people involved. If I just support the one person in front of me who already has the drive, the initiative, and the ambition, it's kind of a, I kind of learned that from fellowships. Like the fellowships tend to be, they have a couple million dollars and they say, we could try to pay our way to fixing this problem, but we'd have to figure out the problem and get connections in the community and figure out what the solution is. Or we could just find the people who are thinking about it who don't have the one thing we have lots of, which is money. We give them the money and let them do it. I, I, I don't have money to give out, but I, I do have access and other things. And in my opinion, it's, you know, like with Jermaine, it's like, used to talk all the time and he was at the, the community development corporation I worked at and, and he sometimes acts advice and sometimes he just throw out his idea and I'd be like just do it like no one's going to stop you um, and then in the long run if you're right you're in the front when everyone else starts to come in and starts to hop on the bandwagon um, the other answer I have is <laughs> I work a lot a lot with Kimberly Dowdell now um, not a lot. She works a lot, lot. So in comparison to how much she's doing, I work a very little bit. From my perspective, I work a lot with her. Um, she's the current president of, Mo- of NOMA. She, mm-hmm. I mean, her, her resume is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and she wants to change the sector, whatever you call it, sector, field, industries, market, whatever. She wants systemic change to occur, specifically in design. Mm-hmm. And 
So for her, it's about building infrastructure. And, and part of her strategy is a dual approach of like for NOMA, she's supporting students on the way in, trying to get people to fund scholarships and internships and to look at where they recruit. And then she also has something called the Large Firm Roundtable, which is about 60 of the country's largest firms, Gensler, HOK, um, I probably shouldn't start doing names in case someone gets, I mean, <laughs> someone's going to get left out, but it obviously starts to show my favorites if I start naming firms. But, um, and in that round table, they meet at AIA conferences and they meet at NOMA conferences. They talk about the issues that are across the industry that go beyond um, typical business um, com com competitiveness, beyond just like, oh, there's a project and we want it. It's, it goes beyond that. It goes way deeper into the, the the sector the design world's part in the problems that exist in the world as it is and then their job is to listen to kimberly or be in conversation with her as they decide what systemic changes need to happen and how do they happen like what literally needs to happen in firms at schools and then her job is to sort of implement it with their support so that's another way. That's a that's another way you build infrastructure to solve a problem that you've identified with your community, whether it's a design community or actual neighborhood. Um, that process pretty much acts, it looks the same way. Hey there. Hope you're enjoying the episode so far. So I have a question for you guys. How does everyone feel about sketching? I know you can't answer me right now, <laughs> but I personally have reconnected with my sketchbook and it's been so relaxing well i wanted to tell you about our next series called sketch it out so starting next week every other episode is going to be a live episode where we'll be inviting you all to join us on a webinar as we get to know our guests the twist to this is that we'll be posting a building on our story the week before. So we're gonna post a building this week and we'll be sketching that building out during the webinar. You all can join us in sketching before or during the webinar and tag us in all your sketches. The idea is for us all to practice sketching while getting to know our guests more. So stay tuned for more information and let's get back to that episode. That's actually a very interesting answer. <laughs> I was, yeah, because I've actually never thought about it that way in the sense of, you know, just kind of push for the idea instead of trying to bring people along with the idea at first. Okay, so I want to talk to you about the current climate right now, especially with injustices going on with um, architects of color, especially black architects and designers. Where do you think architecture and design fall in this climate? Hmm. So there's a ranking system. And, and so let's say in the ranking system, there's some leader and the leader tells soldiers to do something that is bad. Usually the soldier says, I'm just following orders, mm -hmm. right? That's a common thing. We've heard it throughout history. I was just following orders, including now. <laughs> I was just, just following orders. We don't have to even go back to World War II or anything like that. <laughs> I would say no part of the design world from school through profession has stepped up to speak up 
in any way that is impactful. Mm. And I would say that on the school side where they are at the top, because they, they supply all the workers, and no matter how much a firm might criticize the education coming out of the school system, oh, they don't teach them what we need and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The point is there's no other supply. So the schools can literally teach whatever they want That's unless true. the firms decide they're going to build their own system, which would then become the school, which would... So, so schools could have been leaders in thought change, and they chose not to. And they chose not to in terms of who they hired, the tenured positions that they gave out, and the student ideas that they promoted objectively or subjectively. Um, and so that's like a bucket. I, like There's tons of stories you can talk to students and what happened at their thesis and this and that and who said what. And schools, there was no leadership. There's very few leaders to individually, and I don't know any institutional leader that said, design world, you're doing it wrong. Let's stop. I mean, there's like, you know, one-offs because like Tulane under um, uh, Reed Krolock, Reed, Reed, what is his name? But, you know, or schools that build programs and went to other countries and like did design build and built real relationships. There's little bits there, but it's not real. It's not really, I mean, not if it was, the world would be different, right? And then yeah. on the other end, as practitioners, they definitely they are definitely complicit, right? Um, everything from if you decided that your best way to make money was to continue to design and build prisons, then there you go, right? And then on the other hand, if you just promoted ideas that talked, not talked, that that drew design, built oppression, neglect, um, and did nothing to rectify that even in the most, even overtly or even like in a clever way, which is what design is supposed to be. You're supposed to be more clever than the people who are paying you, then, then they're also complicit. And so a lot of firms, they're going to probably, many firms are going to hide behind the fact that we have to do what our client says. Okay, well, you're not an ally. You're, and in my, in my world, in economic development, you're not someone that I would even take a glance at when it comes time to choose who gets to be a part of large projects. On the other side, um, you some firms will try to make changes, and the ones that are sincere and effective will be impactful. And we just have to wait to see and see who who is sincere and then who is effective at making the change necessary. And to be honest with you, the numbers say if you do inclusivity, that diversity, right you will have a better bottom line. So those firms that do it right will be more wealthy, will have bigger projects, will have bigger influence on the world. Um, but they'd have to realize that. And I'm not sure if most design CEOs are leaders or followers. My opinion is there. A lot of them are followers and not really leaders because they like to look at each other as opposed to looking at the larger context. Wow. Um, actually, it's... This this conversation is very interesting, and especially because you know, especially what what is going on right now, and I feel like majority of the people are really pushing for leaders to be accountable. And this is something that has that I've been thinking about for a while as well, because I feel like architecture and designers, I feel like we've always taken the back seat in order to please our clients and things like that. So during this time when we are beginning to hold leaders in the field accountable, I think it's it's both frustrating and exciting. <laughs> I say this because 
um, as a young designer, especially as a young black designer, it's frustrating to see that there are leaders that are not necessarily taken into account everything that's going on. They kind of choose to stay at the back end. And it makes me question like how my future as a designer is going to be. And at the same time, it's exciting because I can see that this these conversations that we're beginning to have or that we're continuing to have, they're slowly creating change. <laughs> so it makes it's like a it's a mixed feeling almost to everything that's going on. Um, so I know you're really into like the global changes, things that are happening, you know, globally. And I wanted to ask, like, after the whole COVID-19, because we talked about that just a bit, how do you think the cities can, I guess, start to proof? How can we start proofing the cities for, you know, global changes such as the pandemic that we're experiencing? I am not sure if pandemics are an, a, a designer's problem per se. Um, cities are, are a typology. Like if there's cities, country, rural, suburban, all these typologies exist. Based on the numbers that I see in terms of how like this pandemic, or let's forget this pandemic for a minute. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Other countries have been dealing with pandemics for like 100 years plus, right? <laughs> So, like, in America, it's our first time because we dismantled every failsafe we had in, like, over the past three years. So, of course, now we're having these issues. But other countries are like, yeah, there's an outbreak, and they handle it, and, and they implement um, solutions. And they rarely have to change the cities. And, and the cities, you know, whether it's Beijing, Tokyo, like, whether it's SARS or, or Ebola, like, no matter what's happened, the cities actually have kept growing because they're not connected to whether or not the problem exists or not. It tends to be bad governance and human behavior. Um, and so, so I'm not sure if, if, if architects, they can influence both individually and institutionally, like large firms can donate to, to, to tax that fund elections of the right individuals. Individuals can talk to individuals and have them change their behavior. But like when it comes to pen, pad, paper, sketchbook, 3D Max, there's there's like things you can design, but like they're not going to mitigate those other two issues. Bad govern bad governance will always give you bad results for the populace and bad behavior will always harm more than just the person who is doing the bad behavior um, when, when in mass. So there's spikes right now, you know, in suburban communities and nursing homes because nursing homes are overcrowded, under, under uh, resourced and have staff that has not been um, properly um, overseen, right? And so the abuses that happened before the pandemic are now resulting in higher cases during the pandemic. It has nothing to do with the density of the city, uh, right? Um, yeah. So, so I mean, you can. It's, it's definitely a fun design problem, and you can. People are going to want to change their office spaces. Yeah. And and that might help in some ways. Um, people may want more automated things, so you don't have to touch as many surfaces. But when it comes down to it, the design solutions will 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 just be ways of making humans more comfortable mm -hmm. and and make them feel safer or more secure i think as opposed to really 
doing more than good governance, infrastructure, and behavior will do. I never thought about it in that way as well, because I, I had just been thinking, how can we design a space that we wouldn't need to wear masks all the time, for example? And it's, it's actually a pretty challenging thought process because each each step I'm like okay so even if the door is automated and you know I'm standing next to someone anything could still happen and then if I just put the screen there does that really do anything like does that really you know help with anything so it's I, I don't think that I've even honestly come up with an exact solution per se of how we could design our spaces and our cities more than what we've been seeing already being implemented, like you said, with the screens. So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, with everything, like, nothing is really going to stop if we don't have better governance governance and, you know, better behavior (laughs) from people. I mean, I came to that conclusion very early on because early in the pandemic, one of my closest friends and partners in business, um, you know, worked for Twitter, and, and we worked on, on a lot of projects. He was like, oh, Twitter, this is way, this is about two weeks before even anyone I was working with started to shut down. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, they just sent everyone home. And I've been to Twitter. And I was like, that's a city block. That's like a small wow. city. He's like, yeah, they sent everyone home. Google just did the same thing. And Facebook's going to do it tomorrow. And I was like, oh. they're well they're big companies, well-resourced, well-educated, well, have a lot of information. And could, if there was a design solution, they could pay. Yeah. And they, they could design it, find the designers, pay for <laughs> it, implement it quicker than anyone. They've got buses, they've got hotels, they've got places to sleep. If their decision is, we need to shut down and isolate, it's because they've seen the bigger picture. And, uh, and to me, the bigger picture, um, especially since they've been looking at governance and everything, because elections are coming up, is they don't see a way there's no design solution yeah <laughs> they were like we're, we're not going to design our way out of this we're going to isolate let people isolate hope they have good behavior we're going to set up infrastructure to help them move between each other through the internet and we're going to help and support them but there's nothing physically we can do and, and except except wait it out and then do the other things which is change people's behavior and 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 work on getting good governance um, yeah, there's no, like when they shut down, I was like, that's Google? <laughs> like that's Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> And like Apple with their, I mean, like, you know, everyone's, and all of them have like billion dollar brand new campuses by the world's greatest designers. So if they don't have a design solution at their fingertips, then there is none. No design solution. Wow. Um, Well, thank you so much, Malik, for joining me in this conversation. Um, Before you go, could you tell us three things you've learned in your experience as a designer? School won't, like school curriculum won't save you. Mm. You have to do something more. I was fortunate. I happen to be around people who are like our school at the time, Cornell University, number one school was (laughs) anti-internet. And we were like, not... And, and to put things in context, down the street, there's three schools that built the internet, Brown University, Stanford, and I think it's Stanford, maybe it's Berkeley, but Brown, Stanford, Cornell, let's just say those three, because they were setting up how to communicate across the country. So the university, also things like Pixar and other high performance graphics were happening down the street in the engineering department. But our architecture school fought the internet 
fought 3D graphics, fought all this stuff. Like they were like, no, you got to use a T squared and this and that. And, and if it wasn't for the upperclassmen who eventually went off to start D-Box and other firms were like, that doesn't sound right. And they just, they did it in studio. They did it outside of studio. They did it. They did it. They understood that the curriculum was in addition to what they wanted to achieve and a tool for them. It wasn't who they were supposed to be. It's just a tool. It's just an asset. Um, and that they needed to, that it should either enhance or supplement whatever else they had. So that's like something I, I tell anyone is like, don't throw away your ideas because it didn't fit into what the school thought. Same thing, second lesson, same thing for practice. Any company, you need companies, architecture design firms in order to get your hours. Beyond that, you can find projects where you need to find them and you should go find them wherever uh, you should find projects where solutions are needed. Just if you see that there's a problem and it needs a solution, go there. And then the third part is be prepared to figure out the cost, the cost, the source of funding to pay for the cost, and then what the impact of the investment is going to be because whoever gives you the money is going to want to know how their money is coming back. And getting yeah. them to be these kind of like, look at it a different way is going to limit how much money you get, which limits how many problems you can solve. So it's basically like take your dreams, pursue them, but know that you're going to have to find the funding for those dreams and take that very, very seriously. Because the sooner you take that seriously, the sooner someone will be like, yeah, I think that this, this podcast should be, should be a visual video. So here's money for a camera. I think your uh, homeless idea should be a clothing company. So we should start with this material, like we should build this first, or you know, forget that pod situation for a second and actually help us figure out tents, um, mm -hmm. or help us figure out partitions in, in a homeless shelter. Like the sooner you, you get to understand and talk to someone who can fund those types of things and get them on your side and, and be able to talk to them in their language, the, the sooner you'll be doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is like, getting your great ideas out there versus hearing someone saying no or not this time. Like, yeah, you should be, you should be setting up the next big architecture design firm to solving the problems that you recognize because you can see them. And yeah. So, so you should solve them. And so, yeah. <laughs> wow. That, those are three great points. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us today. It's been great having you on. Same here. It's been great to be here. Glad to see you. Glad to talk to you.